Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And um, so um, happy Saturday, everyone. Uh, we are broadcasting today. And uh, we we are indeed forging a path for hope and building awareness as well as empowering. But today we have um, a different sort of show. Um, quite a few years ago we had um, a, a very unique entrepreneur from um, Connecticut where I am based. Um, and we are doing a kind of an update show because Dee Kittle, Dee, um, her Real name Diane, but known as D Kittle, is a small business entrepreneur and a specialty baker with um, people who have um, numerous kinds of allergies. And I think there are so many people um, who have discovered uh, that they have various um, allergies and illnesses that really affect the quality of life. Um, she has kind of forged a new path. Um, she is in a new location, uh, a brand new building with uh, square footage, and um, so we wanted to kind of update things and uh, to update the last show. And um, so I'm very, very pleased to have her as a guest. But before we bring her on live and in person, just want to say good afternoon to Lila. Isn't it nice to do a little show with a little sweetness and light uh, as opposed to crime today? <laughs> It certainly is, and uh, every time Dee comes on the show, we learn more about what she does and how she's come about to be an entrepreneur in this field, and I think it's quite an interesting story that she has to tell. Not only does she have beautiful-looking products, I, I'm not in Connecticut, so I've never <laughs> tasted anything, but you know, it, it always amazes me when I see the pictures of everything, and it's like, well... It just looks sweet and gooey and and everything. How can it be? How can it be like a regular donut or a cookie or <laughs> you know a piece of well, cake or even a pizza? Absolutely, she has a variety. So and you know it's and it's not like uh, you know those those other things filled with bad bad ingredients and preservatives and all. So we are going to kind of take you through the journey. And so um, without further ado, Dee, uh, thanks so much for joining Shattered Life Radio again. Welcome back to the family, and it's so it's so neat to have you for a second time. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, well we appreciate you being there, and we're going to do all we can to spread the word beyond Connecticut, beyond New England, and just to just re- – Right, you do ship things to to uh, beyond our local environments, don't you? We ship all over the continental U.S. All right. See, we can send you some, Delilah. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> that would all be right. great. Yes, yes. Well, we're going to do that. She will, I will, whatever. Um, Dee, your, your story is not just um, – a story about well, I woke up one day and I decided I wanted to bake for a living. You you um you went through many trials and tribulations in terms of uh, personal personal health care issues that brought you to this to to this venture, didn't you? I went through every health care possibility you could imagine. As a child, I had a number of health issues, and it wasn't until later in life that it was discovered that I had not only celiac disease, but a number of food allergies as well as autoimmune disorders. But I went through a lifetime of medical tests and trials and tribulations before my final diagnosis when I was 50 years old. So I went through four years as a teenager when I went through every possible GI test known to mankind, only to be told that I had 
irritable bowel syndrome, and I am very common in that regard. Most everyone I speak to who has celiac disease at one time or another was diagnosed with IBS. But at 23 years old, I was also diagnosed with stage 4 endometriosis. So coupled with those two diagnoses, I just figured that I was going to go on throughout my life with these types of GI issues and pain and and I would, you know, I would get through it. But it wasn't until another set of circumstances in terms of different symptoms came about and four years of testing for other issues like Lyme disease and rheumatoid arthritis that I actually had a friend that said, you know, I I think you might have what I have and pointed me in the right direction. And then I was subsequently diagnosed with celiac disease. Well, was it that they were trying to do a process of elimination or that you just weren't connected with the right doctors or celiac wasn't known at that time? Well, you know, what was it? Celiac, one of the one of the issues with celiac disease is there are so many different symptoms and it can be a neurological component, it can be GI, it can be skin. There are so many different symptoms that mimic other disease states. And at the time, this was 10 years ago, celiac disease was barely a blip on the radar of the U.S. medical community. Mm-hmm. So it was considered a very rare genetic childhood disease, when in fact they're now saying more than more than 5% of the U.S. population has celiac disease, and they also believe that more than 10% beyond that have a wheat or gluten sensitivity. And and that's adults and children included? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and then when you go beyond that, you know, you have, you have a number of, the population that is being treated with a gluten-free or allergen-free diet for other disease states because gluten and dairy are inflammatory in nature and inflammation causes disease states. So any form of arthritis, most are being put on a modified or a gluten-free diet to help bring the inflammation down in the body. Um, Autism has been treated with a gluten-free, dairy-free, what they call a gluten-free, casein-free diet for years. And we see how the numbers have increased substantially in the diagnosis of of children and adults on the spectrum. And with this kind of diet, with those that, that have autism, have they really seen the difference as well? Absolutely. Wow. That, in fact, you know, most, I, I didn't go know ahead. that. No, I, I I just find that yeah incredible and and in a good way. Um, is, is that part and parcel of the protocol to them that they, they would put that as part of their um, routine in terms of how they would um, be be treating them, dealing with them? Absolutely, that's a standard protocol for the autism spectrum, and it has been for over a decade. Wow. Well, that's amazing. Um, what are the, um, in, in terms, of this in, in general, uh, in the general population, with regard to now that you've seen, like, uh, in terms of those people that that have any any type of allergens, um, just in the general population. I mean, you have gluten free. You have people that have to be dairy free, egg free. I, I don't know if there's certain statistics for each one of those, but are you saying for all of those combined it's somewhere between 5 and 10% of the entire population? No, that's just for gluten. That's just for When gluten. you're considering other allergens, that number yeah. increases substantially. So to give you an idea, people that have celiac disease, 50% of all people who have celiac disease also have a dairy component as well. 
as I do. So I'm allergic not only to gluten, but to dairy. And that's true of 50% of the people with celiac disease. Okay. There's another group of people that are that are allergic either to lactose, which is any dairy that is a cow derivative, or mm-hmm. casein, which is the protein of any dairy from any animal. Beyond that, you have people who are allergic, have anaphylactic um, allergies to eggs, nuts, shellfish. Um, soy is a huge growing portion of the allergy world, as well as corn. And I believe that in the area of soy and corn, it really points to the fact that the soy and corn in the United States, probably 90% of it, is genetically modified. And the allergies have increased substantially as our genetic modification has increased. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was reading how, you know, um, you, in in order to get your products, in, in, um, you uh, do business with with a farmer from Wyoming. Is that is that the, the, the corn-based flour? Actually, no. I get my flour out of California. So mm-hmm. I order pallets of flour every two weeks that come from California, organic flowers um, that are basically brown, um, super fine brown rice flour based that also have organic potato starch, tapioca starch, because you need starches with a gluten-free flour to lighten it up and mimic more of a wheat flour. Mm-hmm. But I do work with a farmer out of Wyoming for our gluten-free oats. Oh, the oats, that's what I was reading. Okay, right. Um, because a lot of the cereals and stuff, they say gluten-free oats, but you, you could have that cross-contamination, correct? Even when they... Well, the issue, I, I with, oats and, the issue with oats in the United States, uh, oats are naturally gluten-free, but yeah. they, in the United States, are grown in the same soil as wheat, rye, and barley. Okay. They are so also grown good. side by side, so there is air contamination. They are also harvested on the same equipment, so there's cross-contamination from the equipment. They're trucked in the same trucks <laughs> and milled on the same equipment at the manufacturer. So by the time oat is processed in the United States, it might as well be a whole wheat loaf of bread. Wow. How much does it take actually to, I mean, does it depend upon the person in terms of the sensitivity? If you say, well, it's, it's become contaminated, is it just the, the, the individual person's tolerance and then they see it where their skin might break out or where they're going to have a, you know, a gastrointestinal event or whatever? Um, does it just take a little bit? And that, it, it's a good question. It is individual in terms mm-hmm. of the response, the allergic response. I am yeah. highly reactive. So anything, um, one bite could put me in the hospital. Wow. Where other people may get a rash or they'll have GI distress for a couple of days. It, every person is is different in terms of how they respond to any particular allergen. Some, Mm -hmm. like me, are highly, highly responsive. Others, here's an example. My father, who had no symptoms whatsoever for celiac disease his entire life, when I was diagnosed at 50, I was informed that I should tell all of my family members they should be tested for celiac disease. Now, my mother was the one who always had GI distress in our family, so when I said that I had celiac disease and everyone should be tested, I was actually sitting at an Easter dinner with my entire family three months after I had been diagnosed, and my father looked at me and said, well, I know I don't have to get tested. We know this came from your mother. And he wasn't tested. And a Mm -hmm. year and a half later, he passed away from celiac disease. (gasps) Is that right? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Men are so so he had been, 
he had been asymptomatic, which happens more in men than it does in women, but it's a silent killer. So even though you don't have symptoms, yeah, when he when he presented with symptoms, he yeah. was already in a terminal state. So oh my God, maybe maybe it would be maybe it would be a good idea for listeners if you could just go over some of the ways that these diseases do present themselves. Maybe some of the symptoms, um, because I think there's there's probably a majority of the people out there who don't realize that they have these allergies and that they can live a more uh, productive life knowing that they have them and, and eating properly and doing the things they need to do um, to -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that um, one of the, one of the typical symptoms of someone who has gluten sensitivity or celiac disease is you'll have a lot of bloating because your body literally inflames from eating this. So over time, you're going to have bloating or the antithesis of that. Many times with celiac disease, you have very pronounced fast weight loss. So two things happen with celiac disease. What happens, what, what happens with celiac disease is it, it flattens the villi, which are these little finger-like tentacles that line your small intestine. And when you eat, the villi is actually pulling all of the nutrition from your food. And that's, you know, that's how you get the, the nutrition. And what happens with celiac disease is the villi lays flat on your small intestine and you're not getting the nutrition. So one of two things happens. Either you have significant unexplained weight loss, and it's because you're literally not absorbing any nutrition from your food, or mm-hmm. the antithesis, that was, which is me, I gained 30 pounds with no explanation whatsoever. And in my case, instead of literally having GI distress and, you know, not to, not to make this sound disgusting, but some people <laughs> literally have diarrhea like constant when when it really takes hold for me my body recognized gluten as a poison to me and so it stored it in fat cells rather than putting it out into my system so for me it was a matter of a significant and fast weight gain that was unexplained Mm -hmm. beyond that rashes on your body and it's funny because when you when you go to the doctor and you have to fill out a form and you go through you know all the typical questions heart attack stroke diabetes on and on i don't know if either of you have noticed this and i've noticed it more recently is whenever you're filling out the form it asks you if you've ever if if you have rashes and and skin rashes are an indicator of something going wrong with your health. Absolutely, that's how mine started. Fifty years, when I was nine years old, I used to have sebaceous dermatitis in my scalp, and had to have like this salad oil dressing with uh, shower caps every night, and then it went dormant in my body, and then. Lo and behold, 50 years later, and went to the dermatologist, and they were giving me all of these injector drugs that weren't doing anything and giving me ointments and everything. And then it it wasn't until an integrative medicine doctor in South Carolina said, you have an autoimmune disorder, and, you know, and you need to be on a gluten-free diet and all of that because of because of plaque psoriasis, and it made such a difference. So what you're talking about there is how how mine tends to manifest, and I've tried to go back to certain things and highly allergic to to see, or occasionally I'll cheat, or occasionally I'll do it by accident, and, you know, I get those rosy cheeks 
well, it must have been something I ate by accident. So I I know what you're saying. Um, the, what about the other people in terms of the egg allergies or, I mean, people choose to be um, uh, vegan, but uh, how do they manifest? Well, egg allergy oftentimes begins with children and is anaphylactic. So okay. they're having an anaphylactic reaction to eggs when they develop the allergy and obviously mm-hmm. end up being rushed to the hospital. They then have a life with EpiPens. Um, although it is something that they have been able to work with children to outgrow certain anaphylactic allergies through different therapies that they're doing now. Um, other adults who develop egg allergy, oftentimes it's a rash mm-hmm. that develops. And then as, you know, if it's not addressed, the body has a way of telling us, and another symptom develops. For instance, with me, you know, I I ate gluten all my life in spite of the fact that I had celiac disease. What I what happened to me is beyond the GI issues, the rashes, the other autoimmune disorders that I gathered along the way, endometriosis being one of them. Mm -hmm. In the final stages, I had severe, severe joint pain and swelling, and that's why they were testing me for Lyme disease and for rheumatoid arthritis, which they did every six months for four years until I said, you know, the next time they were going to do it, I said, you know the definition of insanity, right? (laughs) And (laughs) after four years and eight tests and and getting negative results, I knew it had to be something else. And, in fact, it was the gluten, and it was just my body's way of saying, if you're not paying attention, I'm going to throw something else at you. And that's what happens with a lot of allergies is people aren't recognizing the rashes, the GI distress. And one thing that happens a lot with food allergies is what you call brain fog, where, you, you know, you forget things easily. You feel like you're in a fog. You don't have the energy you you used to have. You forget things all the time. You're mm-hmm. just not retaining things the same way. And once you remove that food from your diet, all of a sudden you have this clarity again. Wow. Well, Dee, does, this, does something like this just come on very rapidly, or does is it something that kind of grows with you maybe as a child or into adulthood? Where does I mean I don't you think I don't know if we know where does it come from, but well, is it diet related, especially? Here's the interesting thing with celiac disease: it's a genetic disease, so mm-hmm. you were born with this gene. But it's not necessarily active. For me, looking back, based on all of the issues that I had growing up, clearly I was dealing with this from the time I was an infant. I had Your massive earaches. I was yeah. fighting it the whole time. I was always fighting infections. I always had one form of skin rash or another. I had constant ear infections, and that's from the inflammation because ear infections are caused by inflammation in the eardrum, in the Mm -hmm. ear canal. So I had all of those symptoms. No one ever, you know, it just wasn't put together until later in life. However, even everyone who has celiac disease is born with that genetic mutation. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's active. What they have found is it can... It can active that gene can activate at any time in your life, and it's normally after a major, a major stress in your life. So, one of my best friends was in her 50s when she was in a car accident, and immediately after the accident, all of the symptoms for celiac disease appeared, and she was finally tested, and it was celiac disease, and they had determined that it was the stress physical and mental stress from the car accident that activated the celiac gene. 
Well, that that makes total sense, um, even in terms of how I how I've lived my life and how things have unfolded and the amount of stress that I put myself under. So it triggered it from nine years old to fifty something. It was like dormant, and then you know there it was. So um, wow. Um, the can you um you you actually there wasn't a particular doctor that put this together you you did through trial and error and then you, you you by talking to your friend you decided well this could be it but at that next point when did you d- decide well I I'm gonna try because the doctors obviously are not hitting the mark I'm going to try to develop my own uh, recipes to try to make me feel better. And how was it that you you evolved from that point where you're trying to get yourself healthy and, and do recipes to say, you know what, I'm changing my career? Well, here's what's interesting. I actually had had a career in corporate sales with companies like American Express and GE Capital for 22 years, and I was doing medical equipment medical leasing. Supplies. Mm-hmm. with manufacturers and every time I came home from a business trip the first thing I did was take off the suit get in comfortable clothes go in the kitchen and bake that was my stress reliever mm-hmm. and every time I talked to my husband about the fact that I'd love to open a bakery he'd always say do you know how many cakes you'd have to bake in order to make the living you make now And he was right, and I knew he was right, but in the back of my mind, I thought, when I don't have to worry about getting college tuition for my stepchildren and, you know, all of those obligations we have in life, when those have passed, I'm going to open a bakery. And 20 years later, uh, as things turned out, my husband passed away after a very debilitating illness of three years. I was 45 years old, and that was my aha moment. So I left the corporate world. I went back to school to become a pastry chef and was working in the industry for four years. I was actually working as a wedding cake artist. But I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And that's why they were testing me for Lyme disease and rheumatoid arthritis. And then when my friend said, I think you have what I have, I actually went to see a naturopath, and the Mm -hmm. naturopath, you know, spent a couple of hours with me taking a very detailed history and suggested that I do an elimination diet in which you eliminate all forms of allergens from your diet. So it was was gluten, dairy, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, um, eggs, the whole gamut. And I did that for eight weeks. And I could not believe the difference in how I felt. And so then she said, now we're going to add one food back at a time and see how you react. So the first food we reintroduced to my diet was gluten, and I had a horrific reaction. Because once you remove allergens from your diet and then add them back to your diet, your sensitivity to it is like fourfold because you've cleaned your system from it. Right. And so we did that with every food, and sure enough, gluten, dairy, soy, I could not have. I could have eggs. So when we went through this process, which took about 12 weeks, then I had to go to a GI doctor. And I went to the GI doctor because – to get a true diagnosis of celiac disease versus gluten sensitivity, you have to have an endoscopy done and they take biopsies of your small intestine. So I I pursued that as well. Um, and sure enough, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. Over the next eight months, I also learned that I was allergic to other foods, including yeast. But once I had that diagnosis, which was January of 2008, I was told, you have, you have to leave the industry. Now, I had spent, you know, 45 years loving baking 
mm-hmm. going back to school to become a pastry chef, working in the industry, completely changing my life around, only to find out I couldn't work in that industry, and I refused to accept that. At the time, there was no such thing as a gluten-free bakery on the East Coast. So I looked at my doctor, and I looked at my naturopath, and I said, I just need to, I, I have to stay in this industry. I just need to reinvent it. And I went home and read everything I could about gluten-free flours and every ingredient you could imagine and and just started baking. And everything I learned in terms of technique in pastry school was different in terms of working with gluten-free flours. So I just retaught myself how to bake gluten-free, and I baked seven days a week, developing recipes, and I brought all of these foods that I would bake to other people that had food allergies and to my naturopath, and my naturopath gave them to her patients. And I did this for four months. When I started, I had a handful of people that were tasting my product. Four months later, I had over 200 families that I was delivering food to. And at that point, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody kept saying, because my intention originally was to be gluten-free and dairy-free. And then, you know, one family after another would say, but could you be nut-free? Could you be peanut-free? Could you be tree nut-free? Could you be soy-free? Could you be this-free? Could you be (laughs) that-free? And that's how I compiled... Yeah, and uh-huh. and that's how I came to be not just gluten or dairy free, but allergen free. And four months after that process, then it was time to start looking for property, and I was ready to hit the streets. So are you actually? So you were the first one on the East Coast, and are there very very few allergen free bakers that across the country? Just so that there are very few. There are more. There are more opening now. Um, and in fact, you know, it was up until just a few years ago that I was the only dedicated gluten-free bakery in Connecticut. Now right. I think there's, there's probably a couple six more. Mm-hmm. Um, and some have come and some have gone in that short period of time because, you know, this is a this is hard work. I work on a good week. I work eighty hours a week. On a holiday week, I can easily work 110 hours a week. So yeah, you have to be ready for it. And I also, you know, it's not like I'm doing it alone. I have a staff of 12. But it's hard work, and it's very physically demanding work. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you could paint, like, a paint a, a picture for us of what, what's the day in the life of um, – your life in terms of being this this, this kind of baker, as opposed to somebody that goes to uh, you know the big Y or the stop and shop bakery or something. Can you can you tell us what is actually involved? Well, first of all, we're baking everything in very small batches. Mm-hmm. You know, in batches that would not be much larger than what you would make at home. And the reason that we bake in small batches is because our product comes out so much better in small batches. Okay. Yeah. The larger the batch, you know, when you're getting into 100-pound batches, then all of a sudden you're getting more of a manufactured product. So uh-huh. you may be able to make a lot more in a shorter period of time, but you lose that quality of taste, texture, quality flavor. Quality control. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So everything we do is is small batch and we use the absolute best ingredients available on the market. Because one of the things that I learned very early on when I was first diagnosed, I went to a health food store the day after I was diagnosed with celiac disease and bought everything they had that was gluten-free. None of it was fresh at the time. All of it was frozen, and I brought it home and I thought it and and I tasted it, and it was awful. Like cardboard. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. It was like cardboard and sawdust. Yes. It was overly sweet, and it didn't really have flavor. Because people at the time that were manufacturing gluten-free foods equated sugar 
with flavor. And that's not true at all. I actually use less sugar than traditional recipes, but I use a lot of organic flavor extracts to, and, and a lot of fresh fruit, as much of it from local farms as possible. So we're mm-hmm. using organic ingredients, farm-to-table ingredients, and lots of flavorful items so you're not just adding sugar. And that was what you were seeing in the market at the time. But yeah. things have changed. They had, but you still pick up, I was in there today, and you pick up a little container of yogurt, and there's 30 grams of sugar in a little six- or eight-ounce cup of yogurt. The only yogurt I will eat is the Greek Yoplait, um that has 11 grams. I can't even tolerate anything any higher than that anymore, because it has so much sugar. Right. Now, I, I because I'm dairy-free, I do eat yogurt, but I eat coconut yogurt, and I eat plain yogurt. I don't mm-hmm. – I get – I get it with nothing added to it because cause there is so much sugar. Yeah. But, yeah, we're, our hours are long in terms of the amount of baking that we do each day. And to get back to answer your question about what's a typical day at this bakery yep. versus Stop and Shop or another <laughs> yes. big Y or grocery store, first of all, most most grocery store bakeries – don't bake there. They bake off, meaning all of their product comes frozen and already in the cake pan or the vessel that it's going to be baked in. Right. And they literally, it's, it, the batter's already in there. It's already done. They just bake it off. In, in the case of cakes, all their cakes come in from a manufacturer out west frozen, and they simply mm-hmm. thaw the cake and frost it. So there's, it's very yeah. difficult to find scratch baking nowadays. In fact, very few traditional bakeries outside of the grocery store market are baking with anything m- but mixes. Right. Uh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're literally, from, when I say from scratch, we're blending our own flours and we're making everything from scratch in small batches. I have one person, I have a bread baker that comes in at 1 o'clock in the morning and she's, break, she's baking bread from 1 until about 8 in the morning. Depending on the day, I can, I can be coming in at 5.36 in the morning on Saturdays I'm up at three. I'm I'm baking by four every Saturday morning because I'm the one in charge of Saturday donuts, muffins, coffee cakes, breakfast items, and that mm-hmm. has to be done before we open the doors at eight thirty in the morning. So my day can range anywhere from three thirty in the morning uh, start time to six in the morning, and it's not unusual for me to leave here at eight o'clock at night. And yeah. During the holidays, that 8 o'clock at night can creep to 10, 11, 12. It's not unusual Thanksgiving for for me to be here until 1 o'clock in the morning, go home and take a two-hour nap, and then I'm back at it. Gee, do you get any rest? (laughs) You know, it's funny because there are certain times of the year, like in the summertime, we do a lot of weddings on Sunday, but if mm-hmm. I don't have a wedding on Sunday, I actually may take at least half a day of rest, <laughs> although I typically work seven days a week. Um, I know but, you do. You sound like me, but I, it's just, well, I, I think because do you consider yourself, after going through all of this and knowing your body so well and what it will tolerate, are you a healthy person? And therefore, you can maintain this kind of schedule because you're eating Absolutely. the right things. Absolutely. Not only not only am I eating the right things, but there are other things that I do to make sure that I can maintain my health because there is no way that you can work this kind of schedule. Yeah. Without being healthy. So, so what do you I do? actually. Tell us. On Monday and Wednesday nights, I take 45 minutes from work. At the end of you know, after we close, 
and mm-hmm. I go to an integrative medical specialist who will work any number of of um, what's the word I want to say different types of therapies on me. So one day it may be massage therapy. Another day he may just be working on different chakras in my system. I do a number of different medical disciplines with him twice a week. Mm -hmm. I go to a chiropractor. When I'm doing well, I go to the chiropractor just to maintain my spine once a month. During the holidays, I'm there every week because I can't roll out pies for, you know, hours on end without without getting back to the chiropractor to make me straight again. Um, I, I walk a minimum of 10,000 steps a day, but it's not unusual for that to be 20,000 steps a day. I drink a ridiculous amount of water every day to stay hydrated, and I only eat whole foods. I never eat anything prepared. And basically, you know, I'm eating a meat protein. I eat lots of vegetables. I eat berries and grapes and drink a lot of water. And in spite of my schedule, I do try to get at least six hours sleep. Now, during the Mm -hmm. holidays, that's not going to happen, but I make up for it in other ways. And I also take um, Chinese medicinal herbs every day. Well, Dee, what is, it, what is your opinion of organic versus regular mainstream, I guess, is what you say. I know lately there seems to be some controversy there that organic isn't all it's cracked up to be. What, is, what do you think? I agree with them. I think that you have to know the source. Um, one of the things that is is becoming more of an issue in in the media lately is that organic that's coming from outside of the country is not necessarily organic. Um, mm-hmm. That there are different, there are different standards. And frankly, there are different standards within our, within our own borders of the United States. So I do everything I can in my power when I am, because I only eat organic myself or certainly what I hope to be organic. Um, but I pay attention. I call all of my my food suppliers, and I go through a chain of events to discuss everything they do from the field to the, you know, to the distribution house to find out how that's treated, whether it's a, a sprayed crop or a non-sprayed crop, because... There can be spraying even if there's a even if it's organic. It depends on what's being sprayed, but there can be overspray from other farms. So, yes, in answer to your question, there is some controversy and with regards to organic, and it, it's really on the shoulders of the consumer to learn as much as you can about that particular product. And how it's Tell being the average treated. Joe, do do that. I mean, did, it's not like your your cantaloupe has the sticker of where it originated from. I mean, is there a certain way for us to educate ourselves to try to know? Well, if you're buying, you know, you can go to Whole Foods, like yeah, for instance, Whole Foods, but you can also go to Joe's. Shop and Shop mm-hmm. or where wherever, and you can speak with the produce manager and ask mm-hmm. them questions about what they've done to source their product. Um, I, am, I am being told more and more of late to question the validity of an organic status that's coming from another country, and that if you are buying organic food from another country, that you probably want to do a little more investigation and you and you can do that online these days there's mm-hmm. a lot that you can do online to trace the food that you're eating yeah and that's what oh. i do but i also you know i i buy 90 percent of my ingredients from a distributor that only um 
distributes natural and organic foods, and they have an incredible library on the source of all of their goods. So that helps me a great deal. But, yeah, it's, organic is a controversial topic these days. Yeah, it, it is. And I think um, the general public doesn't realize I mean, Do you think the public perception, because there's more people that are have an increased awareness now, are are more accepting and trying to get educated? Or, I mean, there's still people I hear on local radio that think people say that we're gluten-free just to be chic or it's uh, I mean, people really don't don't understand that it's actually illnesses or sicknesses that are associated with these things, and we're, we're just not doing it to be fashionable. I'm hoping that over the course of the last few years, um, you know, people people are becoming more educated. But are there certain um, myths that you're seeing that you you would like to dispel right here that people still have this idea and, and this is what you should know about it in general about this area? Well, I find what you say is absolutely true. I do find that there, there was a good portion of the population that actually believed that anyone who said they were eating a gluten-free diet was doing it because it was a fad and did right. not understand the health implications involved. But I do believe that, especially over the past five years, the general public has has come to be more not only accepting but more educated in that field. And a lot of it having to do with now so many people have family members that have been diagnosed with any number of autoimmune disorders, food allergies, celiac disease, etc. And now it's becoming more commonplace and people mm-hmm. are talking about it and now people know someone, a friend, a family member, and it's opened up the communication and people are not seeing it as, okay. frankly, you being difficult. Yeah. You know, it used to be if you went to a restaurant and said, I need I need this to be gluten-free or I need this to be dairy-free, they thought you were just being a pain and mm-hmm. didn't understand the health implications if you were served something that had those ingredients in it. I, you know, I don't eat out very much. Number one, I love to make my own food anyway. I happen mm-hmm. to be a good cook, so I would rather eat my own food. And the hours that I work don't sure. exactly lend themselves to dining out very often. But when I eat out, I I am so particular about where I go, and I've done a lot of research, and I've also had the benefit of having delivered my product to a number of restaurants that I know who's doing it wrong and who's doing it right. And when I go out to eat, I specifically tell them that if it's cooked on a on the same surface, I go through the whole routine of mm-hmm. what how my food needs to be treated and I explain to them that I don't want to be difficult, but eating that food could land me in the hospital. And when they hear that it's, you know, it's a dire health issue and not a fad, then they pay attention. But it doesn't mean that I haven't received a salad that had croutons on it and someone, and they thought the answer to that was to pick the croutons off. I mean, I, <laughs> that still happens. <laughs> that still happens, right. Sure. And, and honestly, well, it's, it's rare that I order a... Um, salad in a restaurant, I find a lot of people with celiac disease say, oh, yeah, I always order the salad. And I say, really, because that's about the last thing that I order because it's more likely to get cross-contaminated than other foods. Yeah, that's true. You know, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but you're right, and you have to be so very careful. You'll, you'll have to tell me uh, which which ones you recommend so I, maybe I can try. But, um, well, you know what? I'd, I'd like to hear about all of the different products that Dee has because I, I'm looking at her Facebook page and salivating over these pictures. They're just so, yeah, tell us they about look your so good. 
So we do a very extensive bread line. You know, we'll normally have five to six different types of bread each day, and that variety changes every day as well. Anything from our latest, our latest product is really, really nice challah bread and ciabatta bread that's actually got that real nice crusty outside and and soft texture on the inside, something mm-hmm. that we never thought we'd be able to attain in the gluten-free world, and now we're doing it. We also do pita breads. We do a whole variety of loaf bread, sandwich, harvest, sun-dried tomato, roasted red pepper and chive, and, and the list goes on. Besides the breads, every day you'll find muffins, a variety of muffins and coffee cake. We have an extensive um, variety of cupcakes every day, at least a dozen flavors. All types of dessert bars from blondies and brownies to lemon bars and pumpkin pie spice bars and fruit oatmeal bars. A long list of cookies that we make. Um, And then from October through April, I do homemade soups from Tuesday through Friday, and those soups change every day and every week. We do pizzas twice a week. In the summertime, I do quiche and pasta salad. Um, We Mm. do a variety of pies for the holidays, and we do anything from a four-inch smash cake for a one-year-old to a four-tiered wedding cake. We do weddings literally nearly every weekend of the year. Although the parties that attend these weddings rarely know that they're eating a gluten-free cake because they're normally not told. Oh, is that true? So then they say, oh, this is so delicious. Why is it so delicious? Absolutely. Um, They're not told? Yeah. No, they're typically not told because Mm -hmm. people have this mis- Per, you know this misconception yeah. that if it's gluten free, it will be disgusting. And so, most people that order a gluten free wedding cake do not tell their guests. They'll only tell the guests that need to know mm-hmm. because they need to eat, you know, nut free or gluten free or dairy free, whatever the allergen is. Right. Normally, it's just the guests that need to know are told. The rest of the guests are not. And I am told time and time again, oh, my goodness, our guests were raving over the cake. And then we told them after the reception that they had had gluten-free cake and none of them could believe it. And I often, and this is something that's very rare and I'm, I'm pretty proud of, I get letters more times than you can imagine or, or email messages or Facebook messages from caterers that cater the weddings in which I deliver the wedding cake. I can't tell you how many times I've been written by a caterer saying it was the first time we served the entire wedding cake. There were no leftovers. People were coming for what? seconds. That's that's great. Oh, my goodness. What an, what an endorsement. And for you, and what is um, – just to let you know, we have uh, the the show is vastly going by quickly. We have about five minutes left to our show, Dee. Um, what what has this new space? And I want you to give the uh, location and contact information. What has this been uh, afforded you that you couldn't in your little bright bright yellow house in uh, Hebron Ave? <laughs> well. We're able to make more product because we have more room to display more product. <laughs> right. So we've, we've basically doubled our space. We more than doubled our retail area and nearly doubled our kitchen area as well. It's, it's really enabled us to expand the products that we're making. So we're coming up with more recipes now. And yeah, that makes which- a huge difference. We, you know, People get bored by the same thing, so we're right. we're expanding we're expanding um, our portfolio to get more people in the door and more people interested. It's been really nice because this location gives us great exposure. We're right in the center of Glastonbury now, instead of 
three blocks away was the outskirts, but it really was. You'd, where we were previously located, you would not have any foot traffic. This location right. absolutely lends itself to foot traffic. Also, a number of our customers come from out of town, and they've always made a point not only to visit the bakery, but do their other shopping in town like Whole Foods. And it was typically they're going to the bakery, they're going to Whole Foods. And now we're literally right across the street. So it makes it very convenient as well. Yeah, that's, that's a huge advantage for you. And I, I just wonder, um, do, you, do you ever see the day where I know to be able to do this and to buy all, all of your, you, you know, your high-quality ingredients that in comparison to the foods with all the preservatives, I mean, it, the price has to be higher. And, you know, using, you know, uh, if, if the gluten-free foods I buy are 70% higher than the, the, the crappy food everybody is buying, do you ever see the day where the, the prices are going to be more equivalent? Or does that have to do with the, the grocery and the restaurant industry coming more into play with getting better quality ingredients? Do you ever, do you ever see that changing? I don't see that changing for a period of time, and, and there are a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, my food costs are typically 10 times greater than the traditional bakery. Mm-hmm. I will never be able to charge 10 times more for my products, which means that we operate on a much smaller profit margin than a traditional bakery. However, our ingredients being so specialized, okay. they're not being done in such a large mass production that it's going to bring the price down. That's the issue, is the companies that are doing the no preservative, like all of our, all of our sugars are organic. We only use organic cane sugar. We only use organic powdered sugar. We only use organic agave nectar. And the companies that are manufacturing those ingredients are doing it on a much smaller scale than, you know, the dominoes of the world, domino right. sugar. Or, you know, it's, because it's done on a smaller scale, the cost for that product will always be more. I do hope that at some point, because the demand is higher, that those numbers will come down, but I don't see it coming down anytime soon. Uh, in fact, I've seen my food costs go up as much as 50% in the past five years. Wow. Well, well, the cost of living in our state, as you know, is astronomical, and it's only going to get worse with no budget and, you know, taxes, taxes, taxes. And to see the high-quality food that you produce and, and your work ethic and, and, and what you do, it just does my heart so much good that you're there and you care about those of us that, that, that really need your products. And we want to be able to let people know that you you are there for them to serve and you're continually inventing new products. And um, so with the holidays coming up and whatnot, we just – well, you know, we, we wish you all the best, and we want people to be able to go there. So tell us what, what the address is and, and which forms. I know you're on Facebook and you have your own website. Are you on other – I put it on LinkedIn, and are you on other aspects of social media as well? I'm sure you don't have much time to go on social media. <laughs> well, we're, we're very active on Instagram, Facebook, okay. Twitter. Our own okay. website. You are on Twitter? We also have a yeah. very active email um, distribution, and so we email through constant contact. Okay. We're very involved in, in social networking, and, and there are different members, staff members, that are involved on a daily basis, each in charge of one of those. So I have I one see. person in charge of Instagram, one person in charge of Facebook. I'm in charge of the website, another person in charge of Twitter. So we can always keep our name out there. In terms of the location, I didn't give that to you. It's 103 New London Turnpike in Glastonbury, and mm -hmm. it's in the Melson Plaza, right at the corner of New London and Hebron Avenue. 
Okay. Well, um, I I am going to try to get over there again very soon because this has just, you know, whet my appetite for more. And uh, I I thank you so very much. We will circulate this show and what, whatever else we can do to, to, to help you, Dee, we will. And I, I hope you've enjoyed uh, educating our, our audience today. Donna and Delilah, it is always a pleasure <laughs> to be with you, and the time always goes far too fast. Well, will you please circulate this show on your social media? We would appreciate that as well because I think we will both um, benefit and and we we wish you all the best, and thank you for making such high quality products. And it's I'm I'm very proud to know you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to close out another edition of Shattered Lives Radio. Until the next time. So uh, thank you very much. Be sure to circulate this show and come back. Come back next Saturday. Delilah, thank you. Have a good evening. Uh, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.